This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. And I'm Zach Meir. On this week's show, Julian Khaled, co-founder of Made.com. The UK market for us, and that's surprising, hasn't been affected since June. On his love affair with Europe. Germany is our fastest growing country of sorts. But we don't have that high return rate, which would be a problem otherwise. And why he ditched private equity to become an entrepreneur. Said we had a... complicated business to start and none of us had worked in it before except in Ling, but not in the UK. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. Bonjour and welcome to City AM Unregulated. This week we're joined by COO and co-founder of Made.com, Julien Khaled. Made.com's principle is simple, beautiful furniture at cut prices but it is also a popularity contest with products crowdsourced before they go into production. It's also a company that's gone through aggressive expansion since being founded six years ago. So before we get stuck into luxurious living, let's get a feel for your story, Julien, because your career doesn't start with furniture. In fact, some of it was in private equity. So tell us a bit about how Made.com began. You're right, actually. I'd love to tell you about this kid who was dreaming of starting a company when I was five on selling sweets door to door or launching my stuff. But actually at, at that time, I didn't care at all. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a consultant and I ended up in business school just because I could do it. And they didn't know what to do. <laughs> at the end of it, I ended up in the furniture industry by mistake. No, I, did, I did two years of um, private equity. Quite interesting in one way, because you meet amazing people and you see amazing companies. Quite frustrating in the other way, because I wanted to launch my stuff. And so you spoke to someone that you'd met at business school. So Ning, my co- one of my two, actually three co-founders, um, I met him at business school. At the During the last year of business school, we actually, after my first job, and before I moved to private equity, he was launching a new venture in France, his first one, who was doing roughly what Made.com tried to do afterwards, a bit differently. He proposed me to join at the point. I declined. I didn't want to be like the number six person in the team. Good or bad thing, we then, uh, two hours after, got back together and decided to launch Made with Brent Huberman, who was the founder of lastminute.com, and Chloe McIntosh, who was working with Brent. And that led you to standing on the platform at Gare du Nord with a one-way ticket to London. On February 2nd, 2010. And so what happened after that? It's a long story. It's been, actually, it's been six years and a half. Saying it's been six years and a half is actually surprising me because it looks like two years. Um, it's been growing very, very fast. A lot of ups, quite a few downs. The very first year of business, we, you know what, we had a, what we thought was an amazing idea, very good business model. But we, we knew that kind of business model had worked in France before. Um, what we didn't know, though, is whether the UK market would take it and accept it. I mean, it was it was a very early example of crowdfunding, really, wasn't it? Are you surprised by how much crowdfunding has taken off? Not that much. Um, to be fair, I think it's uh, crowdfunding is, is for... Crowdfunding is actually stronger for other um, industries than the furniture industry. We took... I mean, a part of our business was crowdfunding. The other part of the business and the main one was, at the time, crowdsour- uh, crowdsourcing of designs. On, on getting people originally to um, tell us what they wanted to see us uh, designing. We had four jobs, and that's, actually, that's what made it a bit complex. Uh, from start, we, I used to say we have four hats. We're um, a furniture company, so we need to know how to build it, how to source it. We're a design company, we're an e-commerce company, and we're a supply chain company. A lot of people say we're 
innovative because we do e-commerce, but actually e-commerce is the least innovative things we do. I mean, we do e-commerce like everybody does e-commerce now. But isn't the, the new thing that you did, um, or part of the crowdfunding, really the um, crowdfunding of the, the furniture idea so that it would, get, it would almost guarantee that you wouldn't have a failed line or model uh, you know, on your website? That's very true. So the two things we were innovative in were design, the way we, the design process is working that enables us to design and develop a product in as low as six months now, but at the time it was even, even shorter. And the supply chain part, which enabled us to have zero stock on zero uh, losses and only sell what people wanted to buy and what people were committing to buy, all that was enabled by e-commerce, on the fact that we are selling in one shop. On the, I mean, if you look at the traditional industry at the time, and you look at like a big retailer on, that has 100 shops, they want to launch a new collection of sofas. Let's say they have a one, a two, or a three-seaters, and they want two colors. That's gonna be, that makes it six items per store if you order only one. So imagine you double it. That's gonna be 100 times 12 items, 1,200 items they have to commit to and they can start selling them four months later while they are on the shop floor. If they have a miss, they're fucked. And did you learn that from your uh, previous experience uh, when you were training um, in, in um, your business school? I think business school teaches you a lot of things. I think most of what I learned here, I learned it through my first job in the furniture industry where I, I mean, technically speaking, um, we were actually, we were importing containers from the Far East and from Europe. What I realized there, I realized two things. The first thing is the quantity of margin, which is lost and distributed through too many retailers or in, uh, middlemen in, uh, in, in the meantime, between the factory and the customer. And by the way, all those guys lose money and were losing money at the time. So the industry wasn't functioning correctly. And the second thing was more on the customer side. Um, it was that all the designs that, that were being released by retailers were quite boring. No retailer at the time was willing to take a huge risk on designing new collections. I want to move move on to Brent Hoberman, who, as you pointed out earlier, is the co-founder of LastMinute.com and has since become a bit of a celebrity entrepreneur. Um, would you say that having a name like that involved in the business has helped you? Yeah, it definitely helps. I mean, Brent helped us a lot of ways. First of all, he was one of the first person that triggered the idea of launching Made. So he was the very origin of it. Secondly, he has an amazing network. So every time we had questions, and again, I said we had a, a complicated business to start, and none of us had worked in it before except in Ning, but not in the UK. So every time we had questions, he always has somebody to direct you to. And that's, 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 that's amazing. Plus, he's gone with a lot of ideas. Every two minutes or every 30 seconds, he comes with something, something different. So, so is he like a mentor for you? I, I mean, think we, we had quite a few people we could go to uh, when we launched Made on, in the last seven years. He's definitely one big part of them. He's been sitting at our board. On, he's been our chairman for quite a long time. Um, even now, that's still the case. How did you meet him? I didn't meet him first. Ning met him first. So Ning had founded a company before in France. He had exited. And then I think Brent contacted Ning. Ning mm -hmm. got back to me and was like, Julian, you said no the first time, we'll that, say no the second time. That's your co-founder, Ning Lee. Exactly. I mean, Brent Hoverman, do you, um, do you find him quite inspiring as, a, as yeah. a person to work with? Definitely. Why is he a well-known, incredibly successful entrepreneur and other people aren't? I'd say, I don't, I'm not sure I have the answer to that, to be fair. I mean, the, the one thing I know is, is um, 
again, is very curious, very ambitious, quite focused. From what I uh, heard from the time he was working last minute, the guy was super hardworking, always there trying to make it work. I mean, I th I think I know they've been through amazing growth on then hard times and they still managed to make it. So, yeah, I think that's some of the quality that most of the entrepreneurs you'll find, if not all of them have, being able to focus hard, work a lot, learn from your mistakes. On, on every time you made a mistake, be able to change your business. You seem to have most of, the, most of the issues covered that, you know, you actually did go to business school, which meant a lot of people who set up yeah. in business don't do that. They don't have any experience of that area. They go from being a bus driver to setting up mm -hmm. a website. Uh, you were able to try out uh, the sector beforehand. And you've got this fantastic network around you. If, if I'm trying to copy, co trying to copy you, I need to have most of those things in place, don't I? I'm not sure you need to have all of them. You'll need to have quite a few of them. Um, again, I, I I'm not against business school. I think that's a great thing. I just think they don't give you everything you need to launch a company. And sometimes they give you so much to do other jobs that you don't start a business because that's very risky. So the entrepreneurial spirit is actually something which is not to do necessarily with business school. I think it doesn't. I can't tell you about the business school context in the UK. I can tell you about the one in France. I mean, when I got out of business school, you could make quite easy big money doing consulting or doing banking. And I would probably have made more money doing banking. The thing is, when you see, or when you start getting that virus, that making you want to make a difference. You don't, I mean, in my case, I didn't want to follow the curve. I mean, the, 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 the easy career path on the conventional career path. My two first internships were in um, purchasing for a big company for Danone. And then I did a bit of banking. All of them were interesting. The big thing they had in common is nothing I was doing on a day-to-day -day basis had an impact I could see the following day in the shelves, in the, in the, in the retail source shelves or something else. And I think building your company is much more rewarding on, on, on much more impactful. I'm just going to change the subject now to exporting because you're, you're an exporter, but you're also in many ways an importer. Yeah. You're in France, Germany, the Netherlands and Belgium as and well Italy. as the UK and Italy. Damn it. What's, what's the biggest challenge to you exporting? It, it actually took us three years to make the move to a second country, which was France, when since day one, actually since our first board meeting, if not before our first board meeting, investors were pushing us um, to start new countries right away. Did you hold back? We did hold back. I think I think it wasn't a bad idea from them. I think I understand why. We, we, have, an, we have an amazing board. We always had, I think, we're, we've been always lucky with the guys who were sitting at the board on the investors we had. Mainly, I think, because most of them, if not all of them, were ex-entrepreneurs, so they understood the, the business. We've held back because of what I just said earlier, which is we have a complex business. So we have a complex business. We had seen businesses before fail when they wanted to grow too fast and go abroad too fast. So the first, the, the big thing on the big fear we had was, um, we had two actually was losing focus. So if you launch a new country, you're not focusing on the UK anymore. And the second thing was um, not being ready because we wanted the UK market to be, to, be, to be working very well. And very often you see companies who want to go abroad because their growth on their core market is kind of slowing down too fast. So they want to, they want to grow through opening markets, but that's about, that's, very wrong answer 
to a problem you have. So how did you know when to start exporting? Uh, I think one day we just decided that if we were not putting a date in the diary on, 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 on deciding we wanted to go for it, we would never do it. You always have good excuse. Uh, you, you never have the perfect team in place. Actually, we have a pretty good team now. <laughs> but at the time, we were too young. Uh, we, just, we just decided early 2012, I think in March, that we were going to launch France beginning of 2013. So that pushed us. Are there a couple of points there that the UK is better for entre- entrepreneurs anyway? Oh, both countries. And uh, all right, so so that's admitted. And second point is that um, the in France or in continental Europe, people are the consumer is not so open to new ideas as well. Okay, two things. When I came to the UK, one thing that did strike me positively is when you sit in the tube, all the ads you had. I, I thought all the businesses were quite original, quite different on the on the ads themselves quite original so that that was actually very positive I'm like wow that's interesting i'm still going to france very often and i've seen that chance happen too like go to the friend uh, to the paris metro tube only as you're seeing are actually very dynamic very interesting um in france recently i've seen a lot of people wanting the, the new trend talking about business school the new trend is when you get out of school business or not you want to launch your company so I think it's a shift in society. People want to do their own stuff. You've described Germany as scary before. I think since you described it as scary, you have moved into Germany. Why is Germany mm-hmm. scary? Yeah, Germany was scary. Why? Just because it's a big country that you don't want to fail in, as the UK and as in France. We just wanted to be well prepared. The other thing you quickly hear about Germany when you talk business on launching new countries is that e-commerce in Germany is quite competitive. Saying that, I mean, having that said, e-commerce in the UK is quite competitive too. But you hear about like huge return rate. People in Germany return the right time much more than in the UK. Um, different payment methods. They love to be paying through invoice. So they, the way they do shopping, that's, that's what I was told by German French. I was like, you guys return items much more than the other ones. And you don't even want to pay up front. What's wrong with you? And she was like, you know, it's actually very natural. In the UK, you buy stuff online. In Germany, we order stuff online, get it delivered, and we buy what we want. And that's a big thing. So we were scared about Germany. The good news is we launched in March 2015, last year. And Germany is our fastest growing country at start. So, so that's going well. It. And we don't have that high return rate, which would be a problem otherwise. So moving on to the inevitable topic, Brexit. Sterling's been doing some interesting stuff in the last couple of weeks. If you were at work, and most of us were at work the day following Brexit, you all had like an emergency meeting to decide what to do. We've anticipated Sterling to go even lower than it is now. You have you have to take that into account. Brexit, um, the way I see it, I don't see why, at least on the short term, it should have any impact on the business. I mean, turnover-wise, turnover it could. We haven't seen it yet. Actually, the UK market for us, and that's surprising, is doing even better than... I mean, it's, it's growing super fast and faster than we were scheduling it at the beginning of the year. And that hasn't been affected since June by Brexit. The, the one thing that it will make a big difference in, maybe, is our ability to recruit people. And possibly in what we'll need to set up to sell to other countries than the UK. I don't see it having an impact on the top line, but it 
will just make our work uh, more complicated. I mean, you're a French national. Do you worry about being kicked out? I do, I do not. Should I? <laughs> I don't know. Speak no, I to don't yet. I don't yet. I don't think it would make <laughs> a lot of sense um, uh, to kick me or kick other people out at the moment. And what about her threats and name and shame companies that uh, employ a lot of immigrants and migrant workers? I'm not sure I should comment on that. I don't see how it would be good for business, to be fair. At the end of the day, my, my personal take on Brexit is, but that's personal, is that it's quite sad. I think it's, you know, it's like when you throw to the bean a good idea because it hasn't been well executed and you're not trying to execute it better. I'm pretty sure I'm half wrong here because we, we've tried, but clearly Europe was not working as well as it should have been working. That's a fact for everybody. But just like throwing that away in a few weeks is quite sad. Is it going to hurt your relationships with the countries that you export to and that you, you're moving into? Or uh, do you have any plans to move into any of the other European countries? So, first of all, I don't think so. I don't see, I don't see why, to be fair. Um, it, sh it shouldn't. Um, and we're, by the way, not planning of moving anything or moving the office or stuff like this. Um, on, are we planning of opening new countries that year and this year? I mean, there is no new country on the roadmap. At the moment, I think one of the decisions we made last year after opening Germany, and before opening Germany, by the way, was that after opening Germany, we would be in six markets in Europe, um, including three of the, I mean, the three biggest ones. Um, we are not a retailer that can open 10 markets at a time because every time we open a new market, and we might come to that, we need to set up logistics, we need to set up marketing, we need to set up, set up a team and build a brand. And we are a brand retailer, meaning that we sell, we sell our own products. That's a big reason for us to be, instead of like opening 20 markets on being small in each of them, we need to be big in the markets we are in on build the brand so that we become profitable more quickly. So now it's about consolidation, really, isn't it? Exactly. Um, you guys have opened a store on Tottenham Court Road, yeah. just off Tottenham Court Road, on Charing Cross Road. Um. So you're an example of clicks moving into bricks. Is this something that's going to become more common? Is this, you know, increasingly important for online retailers to have a physical presence? Um, I can't answer for businesses that do retail other people's brands. Because I know the question has been raised for like shoe businesses or stuff like this. I don't know what the best model is. For our model, when we're selling big aesthetics items of equality and actually telling customers that we sell with that high quality on the price is quite very affordable and we sell all products it makes a lot of sense um, doesn't it I mean that, but doesn't it hurt the main the best advantage you have the online low cost you know what we found a way I mean we found a way even though for three years two years and a half we had been telling customers that we would never have a showroom because that was the way we were getting costs low. And I, w I was actually writing customers' answers at the very beginning on building that macro that people were using to answer them. Um, we found a way in September 2012 of opening a showroom that at the time was extremely cost-effective. We had no idea whether it would work or not. It's, it's the only one decision we had to make at or board meetings, and we have six a year, so that makes a lot of board meetings uh, within six years and a half, is the only decision we had to vote, to, to vote for. Not because it was the most important or it was going to kill the company or make it, just because nobody had a clue whether it would be a good or a bad thing. 
So we voted yes. And I think that's actually one of the best ideas we've had. We now have six showrooms in Europe. It's great to be able to sit on a sofa before you buy it. Yes. It's essentially the reasoning. That's a bit of a paradox, though, because that's one of the big reasons why we open a showroom. But on the other side, even before we open a showroom, the sofa category, the upholstery category, were the biggest category for us. So you have a huge part of the population who will buy without seeing a showroom or sitting on the sofa. You have, though, people who won't buy. On these guys, you need a showroom to convince them. On the other side, a showroom helps us build confidence and trust in people's mind. As an example, um, so we opened our latest and biggest showroom in Paris, end of June. So I was at the showroom at the very beginning in the morning. Um, at, and so you open the door. On, I think we had two or three people who were waiting out of the door at that time, including that older lady who came to me and she had a bit of paper printed with a sofa. And she was like, I've been waiting three years to see that item. You have a showroom now. It's amazing. Can I, can I check it? The bad news is we, we can't have everything in the showroom. We have 3,000 SKUs and we have possibly small person of that in the showroom. Um, so she couldn't see it. Oh, no. She still bought it. But but did you have a version of it in the showroom? No. Wow. But she could see the general quality of the products and I think she was reassured by the fact she was talking to somebody and then you confirm her that if she's not happy, she just sends it back and, and, and that's okay. The made.com blog talks a lot about the small space crisis. Yeah. What... Is London the inspiration for that? I don't know whether London is. I, I think London is a big is a big inspiration for that. Um, Paris is the same. I, I I can't say about houses in the countryside. But by the way, when you say houses in 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 comparison to flats, you get the point. We launched that online virtual showroom platform a few years ago called Unbox, where people can upload pictures of their homes and all that stuff, and you can definitely see on that that London interiors are much smaller than the other ones. Um, the other good thing, actually, that it tells us about is how eclectic our customers are on how they do they do furnish their home on, on what they buy and what they combine together. It's quite interesting. Do you find Londoners um, need or buy furniture that kind of has a, a few uses, so like a coffee table that is also storage and that kind of thing? That's definitely a trend. I mean, I think the coffee table is the best example you could use. Um, we've tried to sell a lot. I mean, in, in my first company, it was the same. I mean, the first business I worked in, we had a lot of coffee, ta coffee tables, but most of them do not fly if they don't have a storage. Okay, but that's quite basic. And you sometimes forget it, but that's quite basic. You have the same thing with uh, sofa beds. I mean, is the small space crisis more, you know, a personal thing to you? Are you finding yourself squished into a smaller than average space? I hate when I'm in a small space, to be fair. Um, but I'm, uh, I think that's the way to go. Anyway, if you want to be in central London, uh, either you're going to spend a lot of money on your rent or you won't be able to have like everything you want in your home. It's going to be, it's going to be a smaller space. The thing though is it, smaller space doesn't always mean that it's going to be messy or you won't be able to move in. You, you can find a way of like designing your interiors quite simply to make some space. So what makes the ideal home for an entrepreneur? I can't talk for everybody. That's a, that's a tough question. Uh, my personal take on, on, on my home is I need space. I need to be simple. 
Um, I need to be able to navigate in it. I'd rather have a flat with like a large living room on even if it has to be on one on one floor rather than have a, like three floors small house where you have to navigate between floors i like the open space thing or on, on the flat i have currently has like a living room with six windows so you really feel good when you wake up in the morning and you have the sun coming in how much i mean the people when i remember when i first saw one of your ads which is presumably six years ago <clears throat> um how important for for a, a client or a customer is um style rather than function i mean or you know i buy a, um, a dinner table or some chairs and i want to show off that i've got taste i've got class yeah. i'm not sort of that's what i do i don't care whether i can actually it's comfortable so i'm like that yeah but how how many people are like me how many people are just saying this is you know it's a small chair it fits perfectly in that place that's it so because for me it's like a showing off thing as well i mean, it's yeah. an asp- I mean furniture is an aspirational thing as well how many of your customers are in that type of frame because you know you're advertising getting something uh um of which which appears beautifully designed at a cut price so um the idea is that it looks good so that might be general but or generic but i i think you look for something for a specific function but then either you need a sofa or a sofa bed it's not going to be like you don't choose either you want it to be able to be a sofa bed or not. So you look for a function, you're interested because of the style all the time. The style will get you interested in that or that, but you knew already with what you wanted and you buy because of the price. So to wrap up, I'm just going to ask one thing and that is what is your favorite product on the made.com website? What should everyone go out and get right now? I am not sure I'm going to tell you because if everybody gets it, I won't be the only <laughs> one having it anymore. <laughs> um, I have actually quite a few, to be fair. Um, but the one there is one I really like, which is called the Humphrey coffee table, which is quite industrial. We don't have a lot, lot of industrial items uh, in the in the collection, but every single person who's come to my place and checked it was like, "Hey, that's quite interesting." It's a wooden coffee table. I mean, it's made of wooden slats and it's got two big industrial metal uh, wheels, um, two small metal legs on the other side. Okay, well, I think I'm getting a bit of an idea of what your home looks like. Julianne Khaled, thank you so much for coming today. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Julian Khaled. Uh, this has been City AM Unregulated. You can get the Unregulated podcast on cityam.com by subscribing with iTunes and Audioboom. City AM Unregulated is an audio boom production.